Chapter Seven, Part Three of Through the Brazilian Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Clifton. Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Seven, with a mule train across Nambucara Land, Part Three. There were many swollen rivers to cross at this point of our journey. Some we waded at fords. Some we crossed by rude bridges. The larger ones, such as the Huina, we crossed by ferry. And when the approaches were swampy, and the river broad and swift, many hours might be consumed in getting the mule train, the loose bullocks, and the ox-cart over. We had few accidents, although we once lost a ferry-load of provisions, which was quite a misfortune in a country where they could not be replaced. The pasturage was poor, and it was impossible to make long marches with our weakened animals. At one camp, three Nambaqueras paid us a visit at breakfast time. They left their weapons behind them before they appeared, and shouted loudly while they were still hid by the forest, and it was only after repeated answering calls of welcome that they approached. Always in the wilderness, friends proclaimed their presence. A silent advance marks a foe. Our visitors were men, and stark naked as usual. One seemed sick, he was thin, and his back was scarred with the marks of the grub of the loathsome burny fly. Indeed, all of them showed scars, chiefly from insect wounds. But the other two were in good condition, and, although they ate greedily of the food offered them, they had with them a big mandoc cake, some honey, and a little fish. One of them wore a high helmet of puma skin, with a tail hanging down his back handsome headgear, which he gladly bartered for several strings of bright coral red beads. Around the upper arms of the two of them were bands bound so tightly as to cut into and to form the muscles, a singular custom, seemingly not only purposeless but mischievous, which is common among this tribe and many others. The Nambaqueras are a numerous tribe, covering a large region, but they have no general organization. Each group of families acts for itself. Half a dozen years previously they had been very hostile, and Colonel Rondon had to guard his camp and exercise every precaution to guarantee his safety, while at the same time successfully endeavoring to avoid the necessity of himself shedding blood. Now they are, for the most part, friendly. But there are groups or individuals that are not. Several soldiers have been killed at these lonely stations, and while in some cases the attack may have been due to the soldiers having meddled with Nambucara women, in other cases the killing was entirely wanton and unprovoked. Sooner or later these criminals or outlaws will have to be brought to justice. It will not do to let their crimes go unpunished. Twice soldiers have deserted and fled to the Nambucaras. The runaways were well received, were given wives, and adopted into the tribe. The country when opened will be a healthy abode for white settlers but pioneering in the wilderness is grim work for both man and beast. Continually, as we journeyed onward under the pitiless glare of the sun, or through blinding torrents of rain, we passed desolate little graves by the roadside. They marked the last resting places of men who had died by fever, or dysentery, or Nambakera arrows. We raised our hats as our mules plodded slowly by through the sand. On each grave was a frail wooden cross, and this and the paling round about were already stained by the weather as gray as the tree trunks of the stunted forest that stretched endlessly on every side. The skeletons of mules and oxen were frequent along the road. 
Now and then we came across a mule or ox which had been abandoned by Captain Amilcar's party ahead of us. The animal had been left with the hope that when night came it would follow along the trail to water. Sometimes it did so. Sometimes we found it dead or standing motionless waiting for death. From time to time we had to leave behind one of our own mules. It was not always easy to recognize what pasturage the mules would accept as good. One afternoon we pitched camp by a tiny rivulet in the midst of the scrubby upland forest, a camp, by the way, where the piums, the small biting flies, were a torment during the hours of daylight, while after dark their places were more than taken by the diminutive gnats, which the Brazilians expressively term pulvora, or powder, and which get through the smallest meshes of a mosquito net. The feed was so scanty and the cover so dense at this spot that I thought we would have great difficulty in gathering the mules next morning but we did not. A few hours later, in the afternoon, we camped by a beautiful open meadow. On one side ran a rapid brook with a waterfall eight feet high, under which we bathed and swam. Here the feed looked so good that we all expressed pleasure, but the mules did not like it, and after nightfall they hiked back on the trail, and it was a long and arduous work to gather them the next morning. I have touched above on the insect pests. Men unused to the South American wilderness speak with awe of the danger therein from jaguars, crocodiles, and poisonous snakes. In reality, the danger from these sources is trivial, much less than the danger of being run down by an automobile at home. But at times, the torment of insect plagues can hardly be exaggerated. There are many different species of mosquitoes, some of them bearers of disease. There are many different kinds of small, biting flies and gnats, loosely grouped together under various titles. The ones more especially called piums by my companions were somewhat like our northern black flies. They gorged themselves with blood. At the moment their bites did not hurt, but they left an itching scar. Head nets and gloves are a protection, but are not very comfortable in stifling hot weather. It is impossible to sleep without mosquito beers. When settlers of the right type come into a new land, they speedily learn to take the measures necessary to minimize the annoyance caused by all these pests. Those that are winged have plenty of kinsfolk in so much of the northern continent as it has not yet been subdued by man. But the most noxious of the South American ants have, thank heaven, no representatives in North America. At the camp of the Piums, a column of the carnivorous foraging ants made its appearance before nightfall and for a time we feared it might put us out of our tents, for it went straight through the camp, between the kitchen tent and our own sleeping tents. However, the column turned neither to the right nor the left, streaming uninterruptedly past for several hours, and doing no damage except to the legs of any incautious man who walked near it. On the afternoon of February 15, we reached Campo Novos. This place was utterly unlike the country we had been traversing. It was a large basin, several miles across, traversed by several brooks. The brooks ran in deep, swampy valleys, occupied by a matted growth of tall tropical forest. Between them the ground rose in bold hills, bare of forest and covered with grass, on which our jaded animals fed eagerly. On one of these rounded hills a number of buildings were ranged in a quadrangle, for the pasturage at this spot is so good that it is permanently occupied. There were milk cows, and we got delicious fresh milk, and there were goats, pigs, turkeys, and chickens. Most of the buildings were made of upright poles with roofs of palm thatch. One or two were of native brick plastered with mud, 
and before these there was an enclosure with a few ragged palms and some pineapple plants. Here we halted. Our attendants made two kitchens. One was out in the open air. One was under a shelter of oxhide. The view over the surrounding grassy hills, riven by deep wooded valleys, was lovely. The air was cool and fresh. We were not bothered by insects, although mosquitoes swarmed in every belt of timber. Yet there has been much fever at this beautiful and seemingly healthy place. Doubtless, when settlement is sufficiently advanced, a remedy will be developed. The geology of this neighborhood was interesting. Oliviera found fossil tree trunks, which he believed to be of Cretaceous age. Here we found Amlicar and Mello, who had waited for us with the rear guard of their pack train, and we enjoyed our meeting with the two fine fellows, than whom no military service of any nation could produce more efficient men for this kind of difficult and responsible work. Next morning they mustered the soldiers, muleteers, and pack-ox men, and marched off. Reinish, the taxidermist, was with them. We followed in the late afternoon, camping after a few miles. We left the ox-cart at Campos Novos. From thence the trail was only for pack-animals. In this neighborhood the two naturalists found many birds which we had not hitherto met. The most conspicuous was a huge oriole, the size of a small crow, with a naked face, a black and red bill, and gaudily variegated plumage of green, yellow, and chestnut. Very interesting was the false bellbird, a gray bird with loud metallic notes. There was also a tiny soft-tailed woodpecker, no larger than a kinglet, a queer hummingbird with a slightly flexible bill, and many species of ant-thrush, tanager, mannequin, and toady. Among these unfamiliar forms was a vireo looking much like our solitary vireo. At one camp, Cherie collected a dozen perching birds, Miller a beautiful little rail, and Kermit, with a small Luger belt rifle, a handsome curassow, nearly as big as a turkey, out of which, after it had been skinned, the cook made a delicious canna, the thick Brazilian soup of fowl and rice, than which there is nothing better of its kind. All these birds were new to the collection. No naturalist had previously worked this region, so that the afternoon's work represented nine species new to the collection, six new genera, and a most excellent soup. Two days after leaving Campo Novos, we reached Philahena, where there is a telegraph station. We camped once at a small river named by Colonel Rondon the 12th of October, because he reached it on the day Columbus discovered America. I had never before known what day it was. And once at the foot of a hill, which he named after Lyra, his companion in the exploration. The two days' march, really one full day and part of two others, was through beautiful country, and we enjoyed it thoroughly, although there were occasional driving rainstorms when the rain came in almost level sheets and drenched everyone and everything. The country was like that around Campo Novos, and offered a striking contrast to the level, barren, sandy waste of the Chapado, which is a healthy region where great industrial centers can arise, but not suited for extensive agriculture, as there are the lowland flats. For these forty-eight hours the trail climbed into and out of steep valleys and broad basins and up and down hills. In the deep valleys were magnificent woods, in which giant rubber trees towered, while the huge leaves of the low-growing pacova, or wild banana, were conspicuous in the undergrowth. Great azure butterflies flitted through the open, sunny glades, and the bellbirds, sitting motionless, uttered their ringing calls from the dark stillness of the columned groves. The hillsides were grassy pastures, or else covered with low, open forest. A huge frog, brown above, with a light streak down each side, 
was found hiding under some sticks in a damp place in one of the improvised kitchens, and another frog, with discs on his toes, was caught on one of the tents. A coral snake puzzled us. Some coral snakes are harmless. Others are poisonous, although not aggressive. The best authorities give an infallible recipe for distinguishing them by the pattern of the colors, but this particular specimen, although it corresponded exactly in color pattern with the description of the poisonous snakes, nevertheless had no poison fangs that even after the most minute examination we could discover. Miller and one of the dogs caught a sariema, a big, long-legged, bustard-like bird, in rather a curious way. We were on the march, plodding along through as heavy a tropic downpour as it was our ill fortune to encounter. The sariema, evidently as drenched and uncomfortable as we were, was hiding under a bush to avoid the pelting rain. The dog discovered it, and after the bird valiantly repelled him, Miller was able to seize it. Its stomach contained about a half pint of grasshoppers and beetles and young leaves. At Vilhena there was a tame sariema, much more familiar and at home than any of the poultry. It was without the least fear of man or dog. The sariema, like the screamer in the curacao, ought to be introduced into our barnyards and on our lawns, at any rate in the southern states. It is a good-looking, friendly, and attractive bird. Another bird we met is in some places far more intimate and domesticates itself. This is the pretty little honey-creeper. In Columbia, Miller found the honey-creepers habitually coming inside the houses and hotels at mealtimes, hopping about the table and climbing into the sugar-bowl. Along this part of our march there was much of what at a hasty glance seemed to be volcanic rock. But Oliviera showed me that it was a kind of conglomerate with bubbles or hollows in it, made of sand and iron-bearing earth. He said it was a superficial quaternary deposit formed by erosion from the Cretaceous rocks and that there were no tertiary deposits. He described the geological structure of the lands through which we had passed as follows. The Pantanals were a Pliocene age. Along the upper Sepotuba, in the region of the rapids, there were sandstones, shales, and clays of the Permian age. The rolling country east of this contained eruptive rocks, a peripheritic dispase with zeolite, quartz, and agate of Triassic age. With the Chapado of the Parisis Plateau, we came to a land of sand and clay, dotted with lumps of sandstone and pieces of petrified wood. This, according to Oliviera, is of Mesozoic age, and possibly Cretaceous, and similar to the South American formation. There are geologists who consider it as of Permian age. At Vilhena we were on a watershed which drained into the Gai Parana, which itself runs into the Madeira nearly midway between its sources and its mouth. A little further along and northward, we again came to streams running ultimately into the Tapajos, and between them and close to them were streamlets which drained into Davida and the Anas, whose courses and outlets were unknown. This point is part of the divide between the basins of the Madeira and Tapajos. A singular topographical feature of the Plan Alto, the great interior sandy plateau of Brazil, is that of its westernmost end, the southward-flowing streams, instead of running into the Paraguay as they do further east, form the headwaters of the Guapor, which may perhaps be called the upper mainstream of the Madeira. These westernmost streams from the southern edge of the plateau, therefore, begin by flowing south, then for a long stretch they flow southwest, then north, and finally northeast into the Amazon. According to some exceptionally good geological observers, this is probably due to the fact that in a remote geologic past the ocean sent an arm from the south between the Plan Alto and what is now the Andean chain. 
these rivers then emptied into the Andean Sea. The gradual upheaval of the soil has resulted in substituting dry land for this arm of the ocean, and in reversing the course of what is now the Madeira, just as, according to these geologists, in somewhat familiar fashion, the Amazon has been reversed, it having once been, at least for the upper two-thirds of its course, an affluent of the Andean Sea. From Vilhena we traveled in a generally northward direction. For a few leagues we went across the Chapado, the sands or clays of the nearly level upland plateau, grassy or covered with thin, stunted forest, the same type of country that had been predominant ever since we ascended the Parisas tableland on the morning of the third day after leaving the Sepatuba. Then, at about the point where the trail dipped into a basin containing the head springs of the Anas, we left this type of country, and began to march through thick forests not very high. There was little feed for the animals on the Chapado. There was less in the forest. Moreover, the continual heavy rains made the traveling difficult and laborious for them, and they weakened. However, a couple of marches before we reached Treburity, where there is a big ranch with hundreds of cattle, we were met by ten fresh pack oxen, and our serious difficulties were over. There were PMs in plenty by day, but neither mosquitoes nor sandflies by night, and for us the trip was very pleasant, save for moments of anxiety about the mules. The loose bullocks furnished us with an abundance of fresh beef, although, as was inevitable under the circumstances, of a decidedly tough quality. One of the biggest of the bullocks was attacked one night by a vampire bat, and the next morning his withers were literally bathed in blood. With Chapato, we said good-bye to the curious, gregarious, and crepuscular or nocturnal spiders which we found so abundant along the line of the telegraph wire they have offered one of the small problems with which the commission has had to deal. They are not common in the dry season. They swarm during the rains, and when their tough webs are wet, those that lead from the wire to the ground sometimes effectively short-circuit the wire. They have on various occasions caused a good deal of trouble in this manner. End of chapter 7, part 3